Well, it is a pleasure to be with you all tonight and look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you would turn to pages 18 and 19 in your packets, I'll go ahead and read the text for us as we begin. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let me pray for our time as well. Our God, we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts tonight, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have softened hearts, that long after my words are forgotten, your word would stand true and faithful in our sight. Be with us in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about vaccines for a minute. You might have noticed that vaccines have become a bit of a controversial issue in the past couple years. And I don't know your thoughts on vaccines. Genuinely, I'm not here to persuade you one way or the other tonight. But let's talk for a moment about how a vaccine works. See, simply put, a vaccine is meant to fortify the body against internal threats. A vaccine introduces the body to an infection before it happens so that in the event that it does happen, the body isn't caught off guard. The defense response is ready. The body knows, I was prepared for this. Well, in similar fashion, in the text before us tonight, God has provided a sort of vaccine for his church, the body of Christ, against a viral infection of a different kind, a pandemic, if you will, of counterfeit Christians. You see, in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Ben preached about it this morning. Paul said, Timothy, you need to know that in the great household of God, there are two fundamental types of people. There are vessels of honor Gold and silver, useful to God, fit for every good work. Be this vessel. But there are other vessels as well. Those that are dishonorable to God, unfit for any good work, unuseful to the master of the house. That is a counterfeit Christian, a worldly Christian, a Christian in name only a Christian who is in love with this world and its ways above God and his word. 
And so Paul's main point to Timothy tonight in our text is this. Timothy, guard the gospel by anticipating and avoiding counterfeit Christians. Guard the gospel by anticipating and avoiding counterfeit Christians. There's a lot to unpack there, but but first let me give us a bit of the context. In chapter one, verse 14, Zach spoke to us yesterday morning how Paul instructed Timothy to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to him. And and Zach said, we don't guard the gospel by locking it away and, and throwing away the key, but we entrust it to the next generation. And then Brian last night said that entrusting the gospel to the next generation means to give it over to someone's careful stewardship. But now, Timothy and you and I must understand that guarding the gospel will come difficult. Why? Because there are some within our own camp who will compromise on the gospel who will mishandle the gospel, who will abuse the gospel and the freedoms it gives them, and ultimately walk away. And the most devastating part is that we might never see it coming. Just like counterfeit money, they look the part, but there's no real power. That's the concern of our text. And so in three movements, Paul says to Timothy, anticipate counterfeit Christians, point number one. Avoid counterfeit Christians, point number two and anticipate their defeat. In these ways, we guard the gospel by anticipating and avoiding counterfeit Christians. Let's take a look at point number one, anticipate counterfeit Christians. The text opens on a contrast, but understand this. So so what's being contrasted here? Well, you may remember from our time this morning that as chapter two closed, Paul says to Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness and patience and God may grant repentance to some of them. God may rescue some of them from the snare of the devil. And so the the logic of our text is, but some will not. Some will persist in callousing their hearts toward God and his truth. They will not be corrected. They will not repent. And Timothy, you need to know this now. Now, now Paul substantiates this in verses two through five. You notice the word for. For, and then Paul launches into this list of 19 descriptions of such people. And, And rather than marching our way through all 19 of these, I've drawn out just four common themes that show up in this list. You could think of this like the way that a vaccine introduces the body to an infection. This is Paul introducing Timothy to the ways of counterfeit Christianity so that he might spot it and so he might ultimately avoid it. So, so the first theme I want to pull out for us is there in your outlines. It's that counterfeit Christians have a dysfunction of affection. A dysfunction of affection. The word love shows up five times in these verses. Did you catch it? In verse two, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Verse three, not loving good. Verse four, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The counterfeit Christian's heart is consumed with self and stuff above God. And don't you find it ironic that Paul says in verse three that they're still unappeasable. 
that for all of their consumption and, and gluttony of love for self and stuff, for all of their indulgence, they still can't get enough. They're unappeasable. They're never satisfied. That's a dysfunction of affection. But second, they have a dysfunction of authority. Right there in verse two, there's, there's two qualities smushed together. If you notice, they're abusive, meaning they, they weaponize power when they have it. But then immediately after, it says that they're disobedient to parents, meaning they reject power when they don't have it. So either way, power is something to be weaponized or rejected. And when the only form of authority you respect is your own, that's a dysfunction of authority. A dysfunction of affection, a dysfunction of authority. Third, counterfeit Christians are marked by an excessive self-importance. It's all throughout the list. Verse two, they're proud, meaning they love themselves. They parade themselves around. Verse uh, four, I believe, says that they're, I'm sorry, verse two says they're arrogant. They're not just proud, but they, they really love themselves. They're wise in their own eyes. You can't tell them something. You can't tell them anything at all. You can't correct them. Again, in verse two, they're ungrateful. They, they, they aren't showing any regard to anyone for anything they've received, as though they've generated all of it. Verse four, they're swollen with conceit, puffed up, bloated with self-importance. Fourth and finally, in a spiritual sense, counterfeit Christians are a danger to themselves and other people. Verse three says they're heartless and brutal. We tend to avoid people like that, don't we? Verse four says they're treacherous, which is actually a word elsewhere used in the Bible to describe Judas. It's saying that counterfeit Christians will break any loyalties that they have to anyone within their inner circle for their own self-interest, just like Judas did. But I find that the most dangerous and shocking of all things in this entire list caps off the list there in verse five. I want you to put eyes on it. It says that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Uh, there's all sorts of conversations going on today about the, the challenges that the church is facing. Some people would argue that the church's greatest difficulties come from Capitol Hill in the form of non-Christian legislation or anti-Christian parties and this or that political party. Other people would argue that the church's greatest adversary today is the ongoing advancement of science and scientific discovery or the progressive cultural trends of our world that we need to busy ourselves with keeping up with. Maybe you're here this week and you think that the greatest adversary for the church are all those outspoken atheists in the spotlight of our world, writing their books, conducting their debates, and influencing our youth. But the Apostle Paul just made an astounding claim that the church's greatest times of difficulty will not come from outside its walls, but from within its own ranks. These are the last days. You know how it happens? It happens when the church exchanges authentic godliness for the appearance of godliness. It happens when our quality of life denies the power of the gospel rather than demonstrating the power of the gospel. 
Uh, Paul said back in chapter one, verse seven, Timothy, God has not given us a a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so our lives are to demonstrate the power of the gospel that revolutionizes everything about someone. We've been entrusted with God's gospel, the wonderful news of the redemption of Jesus Christ, our savior. But if we refuse to let the gospel revolutionize everything about us, We deny its power. There's an extended quote printed on your outlines. It stopped me dead in my tracks when I first read it. It says, look at those hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to consist in talk and high profession. They know the theory of the gospel intellectually and they profess to delight in evangelical doctrine. They can say much about the soundness of their own views and the darkness of all who disagree with them but they never get any further. When you examine their inner lives, you find that they know nothing of practical godliness. They're they're neither truthful, nor charitable, nor humble, honest, kind-tempered, gentle, unselfish, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They are Christians, no doubt, in name, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is an empty form. And can we just level the playing field for a moment, friends? Because in a moment of complete honesty, when we put it this way, not one of us could claim to be right in God's eyes on our own merit. In fact, every single one of us, before this supernatural intervention of God in Christ, was this person. We are all counterfeit Christians, friends. That's the bad news of our text. Jesus was the only true Christian. Jesus was the only one who wasn't a counterfeit. He was the real deal. And yet, as Mark pointed out on Sunday night, Jesus was treated as though he had no faith at all so that we who have spotty faith at best would be accepted before God. When you combine that with what Ben said this morning, that only God grants repentance, friends, the result is an incredible humility about our condition before God. Is it not? So how does this apply? Adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. Brothers and sisters, we do not live in a day of ease, comfort, or convenience. These are the last days. This is when times of difficulty have come upon us. And so we will be disappointed if we expect to find our perfect little slice of heaven in the church or on our campus fellowship or in our Bible studies or through Christian influencers or celebrity pastors. The picture we get throughout 2 Timothy is that counterfeit Christians are everywhere. Back in chapter one, Phygelus and Hermogenes had left the faith. By chapter two, Hymenaeus and Philetus had swerved from the truth, and many more will in chapter four as well. Sometimes the last people we'd expect will not only plunge themselves into sin, but they will bring others along with them, and it is heartbreaking. But friends, if this text vaccinates us as it ought to, we won't be caught off guard when it happens. We will come to expect it. 
It will keep us incredibly sober and sorrowful and honest over the state of our own hearts. God, never, please never let that be me. It will keep us humble and prayerful over the lives of the people we minister to. God, may it never happen to them. It will keep us from being surprised or alarmed when counterfeit Christians show their true colors. So adjust your expectations. A couple years ago, I remember one of the the men I was discipling on campus was really shaken when a, a, a famous Christian celebrity pastor had kind of fallen away from the faith. And by the guidance of God's spirit, we ended up in these very verses. And it it didn't remove the shock and the pain of what had happened, but it certainly brought some comfort that God wanted his church to be prepared under the guardianship of his word. Adjust your expectations. This is life in the last days. Application number two is to cultivate godly discernment. Cultivate godly discernment. Let me offer just two ways that this passage helps us discern the appearance of godliness from authentic godliness, both in our lives and the lives of those around us. First off, you can ask the question, is there evidence of ongoing repentance from sin? When you cultivate godly discernment for yourself or others, ask the question, is there evidence of ongoing repentance from sin? Is there a brokenness over our sin, a hatred of our sin? Is there a conscious resistance against the love of self and stuff? Do you see a love for Christ and his word increasing? In fact, as you look back at those four subpoints on your outline, a dysfunction of authority and affection, self-importance, those sorts of things, as you look at those, true repentance displays itself by a complete inversion of all four of those. We're not just talking about behavioral modification. We're talking about someone whose dysfunctional affections for self and stuff are giving way to love for God and his word. A person who is submitting under authority rather than rejecting it. A person who decreases in their own eyes so that Christ might increase in their eyes. A person who is no longer a danger to themselves and others spiritually, but a person who is increasingly sought out for their wisdom and their love for God. Is there evidence of ongoing repentance from sin? We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. Question number two, as you cultivate godly discernment, ask the question, is there evidence of receiving correction? Is there evidence in my life or in this person's life of receiving correction? See, in the context, Paul is saying, Timothy, some people will be corrected, but some people won't. And so when you receive rebuke from a loving brother or sister, how do you respond? Are you humbled or are you hardened? Are you receptive or are you combative? If our treasure is in ourselves, then we will always feel threatened when people seek to correct us in our faith. But if our treasure is in Christ, we will see it as a kindness. Proverbs 25, 12 says, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold, so is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Well, friends, if there is evidence of repentance, if there is evidence of receiving correction, then take encouragement. Your faith is real. But with some people, there will not be evidence of such things 
And so Paul continues in our text. He says, Timothy, don't just anticipate counterfeit Christians. Avoid counterfeit Christians, point two. There's the command in verse five. Avoid such people. There's something significant going on in the letter here. Paul has told Timothy to avoid a number of things. In chapter two, verse 16, he said to avoid irreverent babble. In chapter two, verse 22, he said avoid uh, youthful passions. And now in verse, uh, chapter two, verse 23, he said avoid ignorant controversies. But now Paul is saying to avoid people. This is a progression or an amplification in the letter. The Apostle Paul is not giving license to cut toxicity out of your life. It's not a blank check to to cancel toxic people, but, but Paul is saying two things here when he says avoid such people. First off, Paul is saying avoid their conduct. Be nothing like them. Your life needs to look fundamentally different than those who claim to know Christ by their outward actions and have the appearance of godliness. Avoid such people means avoid their example or their mistakes. Timothy, saturate your life with a devotion to Jesus Christ. Demonstrate the truth and the power of the gospel that transforms lives. As the quote at the top of your page says, the lives of leaders must demonstrate the power of the gospel if they do not have nothing to do with them. Avoid such people means don't be anything like them. But second off, avoid such people means avoid letting them take up your time. Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to know that there are some people that just wanna play church. They just wanna pretend to be Christians. But you've not been called to help them do that. You've been called to cleanse yourself as an honorable vessel for God and his good purposes and to summon other people toward that as well. Avoid such people means be nothing like them and do not continue to devote your time toward them. Now at this point you might be saying, but, but Mike, how do I discern if it's time to, to avoid someone? And to that I would say, well, this is where the context of the letter helps. Friends, Paul is saying, Correct, correct, correct at every turn that you possibly can, but if all else fails, your last resort under prayer and the heartbroken sadness that comes with it should be to avoid them. I can vividly recall a time in my life when it it came time to do this with someone. It was a scary thing to see in their life the deceitfulness of sin grip their heart in such a way that they did not want Jesus or his word. And as I saw this person's life, I thought, man, if it was not for God, that would be me too. And through much prayer, through much seeking counsel, I arrived at the really difficult decision that I need to avoid this person. They they want to exclude Jesus Christ from their life. They want nothing to do with him. Avoiding such people is not done joyfully. It is a heavy, painful, sorrowful, prayerful thing to do. And honestly, if it weren't for the Bible, it sounds harsh. But if we hear Paul out on this in our text, I think we'll come to see why it's a good thing. Paul continues in our text. He says, for, verse six, why should we avoid counterfeit Christians? For, 
Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. The picture here is of some particular group of men at this time who had been sneakily building a following for themselves by going house to house in public ministry. They were using ministry to climb the social ladder and build a platform by capturing people's attention and affection. And their target audience, according to Paul, was weak women. Paul's not speaking of all women generally throughout history here. This is a particular group of women that had weak consciences or weak willpower, we might say. That these particular women were immature, childish, and self-indulgent. Paul had been warning Timothy about them back in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can look this up. Uh, Back there, Paul said that there was this group of women that were perpetually self-indulgent and straying from Christ after their passions. That's actually how we know that the rest of our text in verses six and seven is describing these weak women. It's saying that these women were burdened with sins and a guilty conscience led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So here's the picture. On the one hand, we've got counterfeit Christian men playing ministry, platforming themselves, And on the other hand, we've got counterfeit Christian women who are trifling with religion like it's some kind of a hobby to tantalize their minds and ease their consciences. And what's driving this counterfeit Christian community is no real devotion for Christ, but social agendas and frivolous entertainment. And this makes my conscience feel better and maintaining appearances. Meanwhile, there's no loyalty to Jesus Christ. There's no love for the gospel. There's no respect or reverence for the holy God of the scriptures. It's all appearances. That's why Paul says, avoid such people. Don't platform yourself through ministry, Timothy. Don't trifle with the gospel that's been entrusted to you. Don't tantalize people's minds, or as Paul will say in chapter four, scratch their itching ears. Avoid such people. A couple years ago, I was, I was sitting on an airplane getting ready for takeoff. Maybe you've had this experience. If you've ever flown, you know that there's this moment where the, the voice comes through the loudspeaker. You can't understand a word they're saying, and They begin going over all the safety procedures and the the flight attendants find their way into the middle aisles, right? And they begin to show you this is how you put on a seatbelt and this is where the emergency exits are and in case the oxygen mask comes down, put yours on first and help everybody else and all that stuff. And I, I remember what happened in that moment baffled me. I looked around the plane, not one person was paying attention. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm not paying attention either. I look down at my hand and there's my phone. I'm like, how did that get there? Close Spotify, close Instagram. I couldn't tell you a thing that they had said thus far. Even the flight attendants, I I begin to pay attention to them. They're like dancing and making faces. They were making a joke out of the whole thing. And it stuck with me, It, it, it baffled me. See, it's entirely possible to take life saving information and just trivialize it. On an airplane, it's humorous. 
but in the church it's tragic. See, sometimes we trivialize the life-saving news of the gospel by making the same mistakes as those in our text. Rather than being strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus, chapter two, rather than saying, I'm a soldier for Christ, I'm an athlete competing according to the rules, I'm a farmer waiting for the crop, we do ministry for gratification and what we get out of it. We teach and proclaim the gospel to others. Meanwhile, we neglect to apply it to our own lives as well. We, we, we sweep it under the rug and say, well, I'm doing ministry, it's okay. Every now and then we, we begin to trivialize the gospel by, by indulging in our selfish passions and just kind of tantalizing with the truths we're learning and diving into the things that we indulge in saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm God's child, so I deserve it. Friends, we must avoid these mistakes at all costs. We must be nothing like the world or counterfeit Christians. The application for us is to cleanse our lives of worldliness. Cleanse your life of worldliness. I don't know most of you in this room or where you're at tonight. And so, yes, I want you to understand that one of the applications of our text is to stop and, and consider, am I this person? Have I been living the double life? Have I been claiming the name of Christ, but living in sin? If that is you tonight, friends, there is no shame, but the call of our text is urgent. Turn to Christ. That is the only way you can cleanse your life of worldliness is to repent and believe the gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you know that, our text may not be addressing you head on, but the news is still the same. Friend, there is one way to cleanse your life of the mistakes of our text, and it is not through morality. It is through Jesus Christ. Come to him and cleanse your life of worldliness. But for the rest of us who are in this room, if you're a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus now, cleansing our lives of worldliness needs to look different. See, it's not this self-motivated, self-initiated, self-improvement project, but rather this is a response to the supernatural initiative of God in Christ, that he has cleansed us, he has forgiven us, he has already redeemed us into fellowship with himself. Then and only then, do we say, God, you are my highest treasure. I want nothing to do with my sin. Would you help me root it out of my life? In light of God's mercy, I wonder if this week you might take some of your free time, you've got a lot of it, take some of it to pray and read over our text again and then write down just three worldly qualities or habits that have found a foothold in your life. Maybe they're mentioned in the text. Maybe it's just something that God has placed on your heart or you've been convicted of. Three worldly qualities or behaviors or habits in your life, write them down. Then I want you to brainstorm three ways that you might begin to actively resist those sins and temptations in your life. Write those down. And then brainstorm three people that you could share that with. Maybe it's a friend here with you at Focus this week. Maybe it's your staff member, maybe it's a pastor back home. 
Share with them, these are three areas of worldliness that I wanna fight against. Here are my strategies. Would you help me? Maybe put three dates on the calendar that you check in with them this summer to ask how that's going. So you can pray for one another, read scripture with one another, and keep each other accountable. Friends, we must not only root worldliness out of our lives, but we must help others to do this as well. That's true ministry. In all our discipleship, in all our Bible study, help people to live for Jesus Christ and to put on his likeness, to live for the next world rather than this one, to put on a genuine faith rather than a counterfeit one. Paul has been saying, Timothy, guard the gospel by anticipating and avoiding counterfeit Christians. Along with Timothy, we have been exhorted to anticipate and avoid them. But our text closes not with an exhortation, but with a promise that you and I can anticipate their defeat. That's the promise that closes out our text, anticipate their defeat. Point three, in the last two verses of our text, uh, Paul is gonna introduce two characters by the name of Jonas and Jambres. Uh, while Jonas and Jambres aren't explicitly mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, we have external sources that named them as Egyptian pagan sorcerers that served under Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Now, Paul is gonna draw out two comparisons with Jonas and Jambres in our text. Notice them right there in verse eight. There's a comparison of opposition. Comparison of opposition. It says, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, counterfeit Christians, also oppose the truth. But then the second comparison that Paul draws is about their defeat. Their defeat, verse nine. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's take these one at a time. First, let's look at the comparison of their opposition. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. Back in the book of Exodus, specifically in chapters seven through nine, Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses as he repeatedly exhorted Pharaoh, let God's people go out of their enslavement. And God enables Moses to perform miracle after miracle in those chapters just to make the point, Pharaoh, you gotta let my people go. But then awkwardly enough, Jonas and Jambres make the scene and they begin performing the same acts as Moses, not through divine authorization, but through divination and sorcery. So to oppose Moses was to oppose the redeemer of God's people. Moses was the great redeemer figure of the Old Testament, corresponding to the redeemer of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is actually making a shocking point here. He's comparing pagan sorcerers who are clearly outside the people of God to counterfeit Christians that look like the people of God. And he's saying that these two are basically the same. People who are clearly hostile to the faith are no different from those who are in church with you every Sunday. That's a shocking claim to make. Said differently, just like Jonas and Jambres clearly opposed the Redeemer Moses, so counterfeit Christians clearly oppose Jesus Christ. And we'll get a closer look at this as we look at the second comparison that Paul makes, which is not of their opposition, but their defeat. 
He, he compares counterfeit Christians with Jonas and Jambres in their defeat. Verse nine, Paul says, they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now there were a couple points in Moses' day when it looked like Jonas and Jambres might win. They might take this one home. They did the same miracle as Moses. Does God really have an answer for this? And they're standing on the side like Moses, that's all you got? And it looks dark for a moment. But eventually God comes through and vindicates his servant Moses. There's one point where Moses throws down Aaron's wooden staff and it turns into a serpent, but Jonas and Jambres do the same. But then Moses' staff eats both of theirs and it proves publicly to all people, God wins the day. He will redeem his people. Paul is saying, Timothy, I know the times may look difficult. These are the last days and it looks grim. It may even look like you're on the losing side sometimes. But know this, just as in Moses' day, God always accomplishes his work of redemption through his redeemer. And it doesn't matter who stands in the way. And that's the surprise at the end of our text, that as Paul says that we must guard the gospel by anticipating and avoiding counterfeit Christians, our text closes on the truth that God himself stands on the defense against counterfeit Christians. In fact, this is how our text encourages us for gospel ministry. I wanna talk about that for a couple minutes. We're gonna camp out here. How does this text encourage us for gospel ministry? I'll tell you, it's because it's not all up to us to thwart counterfeit Christians or to outsmart or outstrategize them. God himself stands on the defense. God will ultimately guard his gospel. God will supply our discernment of counterfeit Christians from true Christians. God will keep us pure from worldliness. God will defeat his enemies. Our job is to remain faithful to Jesus, trust in his word, allow him to sort it out, and go on entrusting the gospel faithfully. Let me press this closer to home for you on your campus. I don't know what you or your fellowship have been through this year. It's entirely possible that you've felt helpless as you've watched once faithful members of your fellowship walk away or deconstruct their faith this year. It doesn't look so good for the fellowship now. Should I leave too? Perhaps you've been disoriented by some individuals who have found their way into your midst and they appear godly enough to fit in and to reap the social benefits of Christian community, but the truth stands that they are unrepentant that every time a correction is brought to them, they just shoot it down, they turn away. And you're left feeling, man, what is, what is going on? I thought the gospel was powerful. I thought it changed people, not hardened them. Maybe you're here this week, and like Timothy, you feel weary and inadequate and ready to throw in the towel. Is any of this worth it? The encouragement of our text, friends, is yes, it is worth it. If God is with us and God will sort it all out and God will ultimately win, then when times of difficulty come and they have and they will, we don't need to turn our backs and run. 
We don't need to sulk in our discouragement. We don't need to buy the lie that we're on the losing team. We don't need to settle down into our self-pity. We don't need to give way to our doubts. No, when times of difficulty come, we can be reminded that the body of Christ was prepared for this. We can look into the scriptures and say, no, I'm a soldier for Christ Jesus, and I was raised up for this. This is my turn now. And I'm gonna proclaim the gospel faithfully, no matter how people respond, insiders or outsiders, whether they stay or walk away. I'm not going anywhere. I was prepared for this. So then how does this text equip us for gospel ministry? How does it equip us for gospel ministry? Well, friends, just as a vaccine equips the body with its defenses against internal threats. So this text sets our expectations now. Gospel ministry is not gonna be a walk in the park. It's gonna be heartbreaking at times. It's gonna be hard. People we personally disciple will walk away. Friends, the bad news is that counterfeit Christians are all around us. In fact, before a supernatural work of God in Christ, every last one of us was a counterfeit Christian. But praise God, he has intervened in Christ. And praise God that he has not left his body defenseless against counterfeit Christians. Let us anticipate them. Let us avoid them as we anticipate their defeat. Lest any one of us should have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. We're gonna take a moment of silent reflection before the Lord, before we respond in worship. God, the scripture says that only you grant repentance. Father, would you pour it out in abundance tonight? Each one of us needs it. I need it, Father. Forgive me of my sin. God, I pray that as we leave here tonight, there would not be one counterfeit Christian or non-Christian in our midst, but that all would fall before Jesus Christ and find safety and refuge in him. Jesus, you are our only hope of forgiveness. Would you forgive us for all of the counterfeit actions and behaviors we have put up as a front, and would you change our hearts that they might be genuine as you are worthy of? We love you, Jesus, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.